Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, In Threes, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in December 2018. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to my conversation with Ben Whiting, an actor, playwright, magician, speaker, leadership consultant, and storyteller. Ben is here to speak with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Jen Loop shows how three mishaps don't necessarily ruin a vacation. So, when we think of things in threes, or in sevens, or in the number 13, we're thinking of superstitions, right? And I think superstitions are helpful for people because they help us face our fears or control our fears. Now, one thing that I do purposefully in my life is I like to solo travel. And I like to take trips by myself, particularly because they scare me. I tend to be anxious. I don't like going places in my own city, which is Traverse City, by myself, that I've never been before. Um, the idea of encountering people I don't know or how are you supposed to procedurally do things, doing something wrong is very terrifying to me. So in my adult life, I have chosen to seek out these opportunities by just going far, far away, and then I won't ever have to be embarrassed by seeing those people again when I do things wrong. <laughs> so this past September, I took a trip to the UK. Now, there were many reasons for this trip, which we will get to later, but I found myself for three days alone in the city of Edinburgh. Now, I had been to Edinburgh with my family as a junior in college many, many years ago, but this was going to be my trip in Edinburgh, and I was going to decide how I wanted to make my way there. I did not travel a lot when I was young, in my early 20s, and so I thought I really wanted to try a hostel. Um, I am 37, though I don't look it, and I thought, okay, maybe I'll at least kind of fit in with the young folk, because they won't be sure how old I am. And I also am very frugal, so I thought the idea of staying somewhere that would be cheap and would be safe would be really appealing. Well, it was also very near the train station. I made it to the place. It was about 100 yards from the train station. And I checked in, and I checked out the room, and of course I had booked a 12-person room. And this was the party hostel. Uh, they had a bar downstairs. They were marketing to people backpacking across Europe. And I'm like, OK, I can still handle this. This will be good. I explored the city. I came back in early, like 10. I'm like, if I'm asleep, nothing will bother me, right? Yeah. Um, I was woken up. I think, well, I, I was up all night, essentially listening to people make out. Now, if you're not the one doing that, it is a horrible thing to listen to. And though I have to say the place was very clean, it felt very safe, you were enclosed in your own little bed, of course, three stacked on top of each other, and these were the people right below me. Um, I thought about this. I didn't feel like I was unsafe, but there was quite a lot going on in this hostel room. And I had to make the adult decision that I was not staying there one more night. I ended up getting a hotel. We were fine. We made it through Edinburgh. Then we, I was journeying for the further north. Um, I was headed up to Aberdeen. And from Aberdeen, I was going to take a boat to Lairwick, which is in the Shetland Islands. 
I got to Aberdeen. I tried to make a purchase, and my card didn't work. Now, I had been on the phone trying to make sure that like my cards, um, my debit card and my credit card from the US were going to be accepted over there. And so this had been a kind of ongoing battle. What I hadn't realized, though, was what my credit limit actually was. So it turned out I had hit that on one of my cards, and that's why it was being declined. OK, regroup. I am still getting on the boat because I had pre-purchased tickets to get up to Lairwick. Now, this is a 12-hour boat ride. It's overnight. That will come back into this later. Um, but I arrived in Lyric on a Sunday, a very, very rainy day. And this is a quiet little town. There was no one there. This was, in some ways, somewhat frightening. Because you're walking through these rainy, of course, very picturesque European uh, streets. But also, there's no one there if you have a problem. I settled in. This was OK. I talked to my host at the Airbnb. And she said, you really need to rent a car to be here. It's a huge island. It's a whole island chain. And it's beautiful, but you need to be able to get around. And the idea of renting a car driving on the other side of the road terrified me. So I'm like, OK, I'm going to have to do this. It took me a while to find one, because I also don't drive a stick shift. And most people over there do. So finding an automatic car that was small enough and all of this was, was problematic. But I ended up getting a car. I had that car for 20 minutes before I absolutely almost ripped off the mirror driving next to some parked cars in the city. I take it back to the rental. And this wonderful person um, said, OK, we're going to take it down to the shop. If we can tape this up, you still get the car. And I'm like, is this a good idea? <laughs> Do you really want me to still have this car? But he said, no, you just need to get out of town. You just need to drive further out. You'll be all right. So then we patched it up. The car was still going to work. It was, it was safe. We're going. And I had not had that car four hours before I hit something. Now, these are very rural roads. A lot of them are single tracks. So you wait for someone to come by, and then you go the way you want to go. And I'm sure it was a rock that has existed for centuries on the side of this grassy road that everyone like probably will never hit. And somehow I hit it. And I remember thinking how terrified I was. Like, please don't have a flat tire. Please don't have a flat tire. This was 40 minutes away from the city. I had a flat tire. I pulled the car over, and I was in a safe spot. And I'm sitting, sitting here thinking about, why do you do this to yourself, Jen? <laughs> Is this really productive? And then I looked around. And Lairwick is one of the most scenic places in the world. I was about 500 yards from this lighthouse on the edge of a cliff where all these seabirds go to nest. Um, they have puffins. They have gannets. They have all sorts of wonderful sea life. And this is a place where people go to bird watch. And I'm next to this green field with sheep. This is absolutely the best place you could ever have a flat tire. And I'm sitting here thinking about it. It wasn't nearly that calm. I was certainly crying. But I knew that we were going to get somewhere, or I was going to get somewhere. The people, I called them. They were going to come and get me. And as I thought about Lairwick, I was thinking about how I ended up on that island. And it was this 12-hour boat ride that is overnight. You have a place to sleep, but you also talk to people on the boat. And I made friends with this stonemason from London who was on his way to 
audition for a job repairing an old church. And we talked about the differences between England and the US and how we were the solution to the revolutionary war because we became friends. And then I thought back to why I was in the UK to begin with. And that was because I had a good friend from my hometown getting married in London. And I had spent a wonderful week in London where I was the officiant for this wedding, where I got to see her in her happiest moments. And I got to stay in an Airbnb where I got to know the host. And I learned that I loved communal staying and communal vacationing, perhaps not the hostel, but the Airbnb was a good fit. And as I was thinking about all of this, I was thinking back to how when I used to start out traveling, I would be very superstitious about it. I would think about talismans, think about wearing specific items of clothing that friends had given me or family had given me, just to, in my mind, make me feel like I was okay going somewhere new and challenging myself. And I started thinking about how that had changed for me. And these days, it's more of a Taoist approach. And I always think about the story of the farmer and the horse, where a farmer had one horse and he, the horse ran away. He lost the horse. And then his neighbor said, well, how unfortunate. This is very, this is very sad. This has happened to you. And then the next day, the horse comes back with four other wild horses that are now his horses. And the neighbors say, how fortunate. You are very lucky. And then his son tries to ride one of the horses and breaks his leg. And we are back to being unfortunate and unlucky. And then the next day, the army comes in conscripting um, people to join, and his son does not join because he has a broken leg. And then he is lucky again. And so I had a terrible vacation, but I also had a wonderful vacation. Thank you. Wouldn't one scorpion sting be one too many? In the next story, Tim Keenan tells of the three times he's been stung. All right, well, this, this, this story happened in, in Mexico as well, you know, and I, I, this kind of the theme was tells, you know, three things, and these are about three real close friends of mine, three scorpions. Has anyone ever been stung by a scorpion here? No? Oh, good, thank you. Two people. Well, um, thank you. So anyway, so I'm um, in my house. I have a little house, a little casa. It's on a little mountaintop in Sayulita. Just a small house with a little pool. And um, when it was first being built, when I went down there, I slept up on the roof. The roof is flat. And I put a mattress up there. And when I got home from, the, from going out that evening, I went upstairs and I grabbed a blanket, which I had hanging over when I grabbed it. And I got stung. But I, I had no idea. It was dark. And I went to sleep. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and my, my arm was kind of tingly. And I hmm, wow. And my finger was numb. I go, wow, that was something happened, serious. So I went downtown the next day and talked to a friend, and, and uh, he said, well, you probably got stung by a scorpion. But, so I was fine. And uh, the, um, the word I always got when you get stung, just relax. Don't panic. Don't freak out. And so I, I didn't. And it, you know, I saved my finger, stayed numb for about a week. My arm was fine, and I was fine. 
So then about four years later, um, I came up there. I was with my sister, and I uh, just got there. And you know, one of those little skimmers for the pool, those little things you get the leaves out of the pool with, I grabbed it. And when I grabbed it, there was a, there was a scorpion in the end of it, and it stung me. And I go, oh, my God. And I was angry that time. I kicked him off the deck and said, don't come back here and leave your family at home, you know. <laughs> and um, so this time it was different. My arm became numb, but also um, it seemed to close my airway a little bit. So I was like, no, oh, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. And, uh, but after a bit, it went away. My finger stayed numb for a little bit longer this time. And I was fine. And then so I'd say about 10 years later, 2016, I um, spent the day at the beach. I had the same routine every day. Now, this is, this is difficult. I hope you all can bear with me here. But I get up in the morning, make myself a smoothie. I walk down into town, go to yoga. I get out of yoga, get a little uh, juice. And then I go to the ocean and do stand-up paddling. This is my life now, people. <laughs> And, um, and then I go home, and then I write or read or, or something, and nap, of course. But, uh, but, but this particular day, and sometimes I go back into town. And, um, but this particular night, I didn't go back into town. I'm, I'm by myself. And uh, so I'm up there. I, like I said, I live in the jungle. If I didn't say it, I live in the jungle on top of this little mountain. My only neighbor's one mountain over. And... Uh, so there's no need to wear clothes, really. Why wear clothes? So, um, so I'm nude, of course, and then it, the sun goes down. It gets a little bit chilly. I just put a, I put a, just a shirt on. That's it. I'm wandering around, and I thought, I'm, I think I'm going to stay here tonight and just um, make some popcorn and watch a movie. And so I made some popcorn, great batch, huge, nice butter. And then went and sat on the couch, and the couch is covered with this, uh, like a Mexican blanket, a lot of colors in it. And um, I went and got my computer and put the film in there. And then I, was, I sat down on the couch, and I was going to um, you know, get the speakers going so I could just kick back. And all of a sudden, I felt a burning sensation. <laughs> and, um, and I had the, my computer on my lap. And, uh, okay, well, I was just going to calmly get up, stay calm, whatever it is. And I st and, but now it was, Jesus! And I threw the, the, this, this, the, my computer off myself, and I, what the fuck? And I reached down in my asshole and put, it's a fucking scorpion! I threw it down and stomped on it. I was so pissed off. I go, oh, man, in the asshole. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. And, and of all, what are the odds? I mean, what are the odds? I guess there, you know, I could, it could have been worse, I guess. But um, So uh, I go, okay, now i got to start thinking about this. What's going to happen now? And, um, but the main thing I was worried about was my, my airway. So, uh, okay, and I've heard rumors, because there's a lot of rumors. Oh, if they're, if they're clear, they're really dangerous. Or if they're big and brown, they're dangerous. Or if you get bit three times, you're in real trouble. <laughs> I heard that one. So I was a bit concerned. And uh, so, okay, 
the main thing is the airways. So, okay, I, I've got an EpiPen. And so I went in. Has anyone ever used an EpiPen before? You don't have to introduce yourself, but um, okay, just keep your hands down. Because I never had. But you know what they are, right? Those things. So you, I get out it quickly. Oh, these are simple. Just take it, take the thing off there. The hardest part is jamming the thing into your thigh. So I take it off and I go, well, I better do this. And so, boom, I stick the needle in my thigh and I pull it out. Okay, good. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. So um, I decide, okay, I'm going to go. Everything seems to be cool. My ass is numb. <laughs> it's tingling. And my asshole's numb, I should say. And I, so I, I said, I'm just going to go to bed now. I've had a, this is, this is enough for me. So I laid down in bed with a movie on my lap, on my, on my stomach, and I watched it, and I ended up falling asleep. Okay, that's great. And I woke up in the morning, just getting light. And I, same routine, I'm going to get up, and I swallow. Okay, my airways, like it was before, but it's not too bad. I think I'm all right. Made myself a smoothie, and uh, when I was doing that, I kind of looked over at the, um, the, there's the EpiPen, all the paperwork. I looked at it. This was 2016, when, I, when the asshole scorpion came. <laughs> the EpiPen said 2002. <laughs> My thigh is all swollen up. Um, so, Okay, but I'm thinking it worked, but I guess it probably didn't. I just lived. So I drink my smoothie, and I walk down the mountain. I go to yoga, and I go to yoga, and uh, after yoga's over, I go up to Melissa. She's my yoga instructor, and I, after everyone left. I didn't tell her why I got stung, by the way. But I went up, and I said, Melissa, um, what happens? I mean, you've been down, you've lived here all your life. What happens if you get stung by a scorpion for the third time? She said, Tim, you're alive. Yeah. You're going to be fine. I said, okay, great. That's all I wanted to hear. That's what I thought to myself. Thank you. She, she looks at me. What about the scorpion? What happened to the scorpion? And I said, I killed the fucker. And she said, and she got teary-eyed, and she turned and walked away from me. I go, oh, my God. So she, I got my stuff on. I took off, went down to the coffee shop, and I got myself some juice. And I'm sitting there, and I'm pondering this. And I think, okay, here's me. Can't feel my asshole. Got a numb ass. Can barely breathe. My thigh is huge from the bruise. Now I've got my yoga instructor so disappointed in me. <laughs> she thought I was a nonviolent man. And now I find myself feeling horrible that I took the scorpion's life. I'm serious. Thank you. Next, even in the face of three major medical issues, Dave Murphy can appreciate the poignant moments. Have you ever noticed that nothing bad happens at a convenient time? 
Um, I had a friend who tried to dispute me on that fact. He said, but I knew a buddy who, uh, he had a heart attack, but he was only two blocks from the hospital. So he got lucky. And I, I said, that's not lucky. That's a random geographic anomaly in the midst of a myocardial infarction. <laughs> and, and so please get your terminology right. So when I checked myself into the ER a couple days before Christmas, uh, what I had on my mind is that this is not convenient. And, and part of why I was thinking that way is because over the past eight months, I'd had 12 surgeries and six emergency hospitalizations because of a completely botched treatment plan for a pretty common condition. And it led to permanent and completely avoidable damage that was pretty upsetting. And one of the fallouts from the bad treatment was that my heart started to, started to misbehave. I work out a lot. I never saw that coming. Uh, there was a lot of heart issues in my family. I always struggled to make sure that wouldn't hit me. But it did, and it was uh, a really radical arrhythmia. My heart would just start racing at like 175 beats a minute. And it's really uh, anxiety-ridden when you're in that state. So uh, I'd been in that condition for about 24 hours. I chose to muscle through it because we were also caregivers for my dementia-impaired mother. And she had a bunch of medical appointments the, the day before. So I went into the condition. We got through it. I was hoping it would flip back on its own. I'd been in this condition four or five times, and twice I had to be hospitalized. And two times I was able to just it convert it on its own. So this time I needed help. So I went in, and unbelievably, um, they botched it again. There was another glitch in the treatment plan. I ended up hospitalized longer. And they didn't get the heart converted. So now I'm at 48 hours of this heart racing at 175 beats a minute. And um, I'm, I'm going a little bit crazy. So finally, I meet with a physician assistant who goes through it with me, apologizes, explains what has to be done. I'm going to be there for a while. I'm going to have to have a second invasive procedure that shouldn't have been necessary. But they're going to get it straightened out. So I leave, and I'm trying to calm down. And I'm hooked up to an IV pole, and I have a heart holder on. It has uh, electrodes attached like an EKG does. So I'm trying to calm down by walking around, and here come some Christmas carolers, and because it's days before Christmas. And I started having sociopathic thoughts. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes too much sweetness just can get to you. So um, I'm looking at these people, and they're coming my way, and they're singing, God rest ye merry gentlemen. And uh, I, I zero in on this guy, this tall guy with a beard, and he's grinning, and he's singing. And I'm thinking, you son of a bitch, don't look at me. If you keep coming any closer, I'm going to shove my IV pole up your and And, uh, and then I realized that th these are good people. I, I, I probably shouldn't be here right now. So I took my heart holter and my IV pole, and I, I kind of hobble-jogged down to a stairwell where I hid until the carolers made their rounds. And uh, they got me out of there. And the next year, the calendar year changed, and the medical carnival continued with a few more procedures. My mother's plunge into dementia was precipitous. And um, I guess I should probably mention that our house was totaled in a fire. So it, it, ju it, it just was kind of a piling on uh, stretch of time for us. And we got back to Christmas again, so it's a year later, and we're right back at the exact same date. 
And I am working. I mean, really, I am working. I am trying to be present. I am trying to be grounded. I am trying to be grateful. And I'm trying all kinds of bullshit. But, <laughs> and it's kind of working. Uh, I, I'm kind of coming back, but it's hard. And uh, it's a Sunday night. My wife works a conventional job outside the home. Uh, I work from a home office, and that allowed me to be a 24-7 caregiver for my mother. So, but when weekends came, I was really grateful because that's when my wife could pick up uh, some of the caregiving tasks for me. And I was observing my wife and my mother, and it was really a beautiful moment. They were working well together. My mother was slipping badly, but my wife was doing everything she could. She was much better than me with this. And they started talking about uh, recipes that my mother used to bake for uh, Christmas. And it, my mother got in her head that she wanted to make something that she'd been making since childhood. And the only time she'd missed it, she was 90 years old. She started making it when she was about 10. And the first time she missed it was the previous year when I was hospitalized. So she wanted to make that recipe again. And my wife and mother went to work. My mother had an incredible array of uh, Christmas recipes, so they couldn't find it. And the next day came, and uh, my wife was at her job. I was taking care of my mother, getting her breakfast, getting her medications. And uh, I decided I'm going to look for it. And it was fun. It was kind of an archaeology expedition. I was wading through this amazing assortment of recipes, and you could see the oils and flour and sugar and... Uh, spices that she dropped on the recipes through the years and remarkably I found the recipe and uh, for a guy who hadn't had much go right in a long time it didn't take much to make me happy so I was excited and I showed the recipe to my mother and she couldn't recognize it not because it was wrong it was the right recipe but uh, dementia was too far along and for all of the losses my mother had experienced by this point one thing that she retained was the ability to read emotions so she looked at me and she saw I was disappointed and she said, was what I said really a grown-up thing to say? And her, her word choices had become fascinating to me because she really was communicating, but she couldn't use the crisp vocabulary that we're used to. And, and I knew what she meant by this. She meant that she was my mother and she was not able to measure up and she felt badly. And... and um, Although I, it was bittersweet and I was sad that she was seeing things that way, I was also still fascinated by her ability to communicate despite her impairments. So I got in front of her and I said, you know, that was really a beautiful way to put it. And I, I have to tell you, you are still my full-grown mother. You're absolutely fine. And she started to laugh. And uh, I started to laugh. And it was really a delightful moment. She, she started laughing so hard. And you've been in this situation before where... The laughter uh, isn't justified by the moment, but something just tickles you, so you keep doing it. So um, it was a really pleasant moment, and then I got going with some of my tasks again. And it was such a nice moment that um, the day before, I had heard a Christmas carol while driving in the car on the radio. And uh, the Christmas carol was, Do You Hear What I Hear? And I started to whistle it, and I'm a lousy whistler. But uh, I must have hit a few of the notes, and I was whistling the lyrics, said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? And all of a sudden, my mother screamed, and she yelled, do you hear it? And I, I, I was frightened because she never spoke at that volume, and I didn't know what was wrong. I wasn't reading the situation. 
So I got in front of her, and, and she had disappeared. Her eyes were glazed over. It was that thousand-mile stare. And I didn't know what had happened. And she repeated herself, did you hear it? And I'm trying to read the situation, but I'm not fully connecting with her. And I'm, I'm thinking about, in the previous days and weeks, she was back to some of that magical speech, that dreamlike speech. One day she talked about being between two worlds. And I asked her to try to define it. And she said, I'm not here anymore, but I'm not where I need to go to. On another occasion, she talked about seeing everything. And I asked her what she meant by that. And she said, I see everything. I see all the people I used to know, all the places I ever was. It's all there. Everything is there. I see everything. And then most recently, she had come down from her bedroom. It was morning after a night's sleep. And she was very happy. And I, I asked her what was up. And she said, I, I spent the night with an angel. And I asked her to clarify. And she said, an angel was there all night. It was asking me to come. And I asked her what the angel looked like. And she said, it was a little girl. And she looked exactly like me when I was a child. And so I'm trying to read this situation. You know, is, is she having one of these transitional moments? And then I look down, and I see her hearing aids on the table. And you're way ahead of me. But <laughs> I, I, I realize she just heard me whistling. And she picked up on the lyrics, do you hear what I hear? So what do you do in a moment like that? Because you have someone who knows that they're disappearing, and they're wishing themselves away, and they're hoping for something profound, and it's just before Christmas. And so I, I didn't want to disappoint, but I didn't want to be dishonest. So finally, I, and she's pleading, did you hear it? And finally I said, Mom, is it possible that what happened is you heard me whistling and your hearing aids are on the table. And she looked confused and then she looked down and she saw the hearing aids and she started to laugh again. She got it. And I was surprised that she got it. And she started laughing even harder than she had laughed before. And it got hysterical again and it was wonderful. My mother lived for about two more years after that encounter and her decline was... Uh, uh, dementia is the cruelest thief uh, on this planet. It takes a piece of our loved ones bit by bit by bit, day by day. And the last five months of her life, she could no longer speak. She could now, uh, no longer understand us. But so often in those two years, and especially that last five months, I went back to that moment and I thought about that disease. It, you know, sometimes you could actually feel it in the room. It was actually there present with you. You knew that thief was there. And you can't beat it. It wins every battle. It always wins. But sometimes when you're going down, you can give it a kick in the teeth. And that's what happened when we laughed at it that day. And I, I think about that moment even now. It was transcendent to me. It really was. And it was also the best and final gift, Christmas gift, that my mother ever gave to me. Thank you. Next up, Sue Ann Round has been asked by Maharishi to deliver a report to the First Lady. You heard that right. So my story of threes in, happens in 1982. And my little trio involves Maharishi Mahashyogi, Nancy Reagan, and me. 
we're going to take a ride. <laughs> so in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, at Michigan State University, I could literally not walk anywhere and not see a big poster of the Beatles and Maharishi promoting transcendental meditation. I pursued it enough then to find out that you could not smoke pot for six weeks uh, if you were going to learn that technique. Now, I don't even think in 1969 that Sparty could have done that. <laughs> you know, these were the protesting, psychedelic years of my generation's formal education. <laughs> so, after I did graduate, I did follow the sage advice of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and I did learn the deeply satisfying experience of experiencing these deep inner states of the mind, and I loved it. So uh, what I would do for that next decade is I would wrangle 60 little kindergartners around for about nine months of the year, and then for three months of the year, I would travel to India or Austria or Switzerland and study with now my beloved Maharishi. And after several, about eight years of that, um, he suggested to me that I study uh, at his university that they had just added in uh, a program, um, a master's in educational administration. And he thought that I should do that, which I did, and I, um, uh, after I graduated, I was hired to work in administration at Maharishi International University. That is an interesting place. There's tons of research going on there, hundreds of studies done on uh, long-term sh uh, effects, short-term effects of transcendental meditation, and it's a very interesting place. Also, Maharishi was introducing uh, advanced techniques to long-term meditators at that time, and they were called the cities, and they involved paranormal activities. So, very interesting. We would there would be a couple thousand of us every day going into these two big golden domes, uh, meditating deeply twice a day, and. Once we were there, sometimes performing these city techniques, one was levitation, just normal stuff, you know? <laughs> Had big foam pads throughout the whole dome. I mean, try to explain this to your parents, what you're doing. <laughs> anyway, so this is my life. Also, a thing about the golden domes is that you had to have very, it was very secure. You had to study for months to become a siddha or learn these techniques, and so once you did, you were given this very fancy badge. It was very cool. And the day you got your badge, that was a wonderful day. So very high security in the Golden Domes. So now this is when uh, Nancy Reagan enters my picture, this, the life of mine. So it's 1982, and um, this is just a year after President Reagan's, the attempt on his life had taken place. So uh, she was resuming her normal responsibilities uh, to go out and lecture and take on her program, which was just say no to drugs. 
So because of the extensive research going on at the university showing that when a person meditated, there was decreased drug use, Maharishi asked me and three other lady administrators at the university uh, to go up to the airport, she was flying into Cedar Rapids, and present her with this volume of research. This was very last minute, and we didn't have a lot of time to plan. But one of the trustees of the university said, look, you can take my blue Cadillac. I've got Washington, D.C. plates on it. We asked one of our fellow administrators, Kingsley Brooks, to please uh, uh, be our chauffeur. So we did everything we could to look official. <laughs> and we drive up to Cedar Rapids Airport. Now, if you think that airport security is high now, that was intense. This was really, it was very, very high security. We, we entered the airport, but we literally had a flank of blue moving towards us with, right in the center, the head of security asking us what we were doing coming in the airport. So we explained our mission, and we said that what we wanted to do, we wanted to present Mrs. Reagan with this research, with these red roses, and, you know, they said, no, you are not going to do that. You know, we will take the roses, we will take the research, but you will be on your merry way. And so we were disappointed. We left uh, the airport, and, but just as we were at the exit, we saw that some people were lining up uh, and ready. Uh, they must have, the word was out that she was there, and maybe we'd get a chance to at least wave to her. So that did happen. So she came by, and we waved at her. And we th said, okay, you know, didn't exactly, you know, get our mission accomplished, but we're going to head back to Fairfield now. So we're going over the viaduct, and we look down, and we see Nancy Reagan's limousine. And we say to Kingsley, follow it. It was just impulse. We had no plan. And all of a sudden, in, in shocking fashion, we are inside this motorcade. <laughs> Here is Nancy Reagan's limo, the NBC News car, our car, and behind us is a siren. <laughs> and they are coming up. We're still in full motion. They're coming up beside us. And the police officer pulls out his bullhorn to us, and he says, are you an official part of this motorcade? <laughs> what do we do? We don't consult with each other. All of us pull out our levitation badges, <laughs> put them on the window, and we say, yes, we are. <laughs> this is damn serious now. We have just infiltrated the heaviest security system in the United States. The police officer drops back behind us 
is that to check out our plates and then come back up and pull us over and say stop and drop? <laughs> we didn't know. We were just petrified. So he's back there and he's not seeing our horrified faces. We are screaming in this car saying, oh my dear God in heaven tonight, we are going to be doing our meditation inside a jail cell. <laughs> or could this little plan be working? Did we look enough the part? We got the DC plates. We got the chauffeur. We're all dressed up in our silk dresses. Are we looking the part? We're still terrified. We don't know where we're going. This has not been announced why she's, you know, she's just coming to see. So we're in the motorcade, um, and we see that we're approaching Iowa City. And as we get into Iowa City, there are just throngs of people that are roped off and come to well-wish and wave to Mrs. Reagan and see her. But we realize they're not only waving at her, <laughs> they're waving at us. <laughs> and they're totally thinking we're part of this entourage too. And so what's a girl to do? So we start waving like we're cherry princesses, you know? So we have this simultaneous thing going on. We are terrified and we're elated. This is not a great thing for the nervous system, but this is happening. <laughs> so we go through, we're waving, then we go a little bit further, still not knowing where we're going. And then we see we're approaching the University of Iowa. Now the crowds are entirely changed. Now we're on a college campus, and now it is protesters. And this is anti-war, anti-Reagan, signs up, hey, Nancy, where'd you get your China? Remember that story? Anyway, so the mood is entirely different there on the campus. So we're driven into this parking lot, and not exactly knowing what's going to happen, but Mrs. Reagan is let out in heavy security around her. She's let up a private elevator. And we are directed to go to a, a stairwell in the back of a tall building. And we go into the stairwell, and we look up, and on every floor of the stairwell is a CIA agent checking official identification. <laughs> Dear God in heaven, I, my heart still pounds when I think about, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to try this? I still can't believe we did it. And I still can't believe that every single floor that levitation badge worked. <laughs> I am telling you, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, Harry Potter had nothing on us that day. You know, it was magical. But he also had Voldemort, right? So it's like we were still really terrified. So 
and we don't even know where we're being led. So we get into the top floor, and there is just a massive amount of reporters and television cameras, and Nancy's up at a dais, and she's answering questions on uh, just say no to drugs. And I would be lying my head off if I told you that I heard one word she said. I, I don't know. All I could think of is we are in the middle of this thing, and we got to get out of the middle of this thing. <laughs> the thing is done. We're led back down the stairway and get back into this little entourage, which is not easy to get out of. We're, we're all roped in there, so we don't know again where we're going. We're driving again. And it, it's uh, becoming clear that we're headed back to the airport, to the Cedar Rapids airport. But not just the Cedar Rapids airport. We are being taken out onto the tarmac of Air Force One. Does this sound like it possibly has a good ending? <laughs> I'm just shaking just telling it again. <laughs> we watch as Nancy gets out and goes up the staircase. And I do not know what we inhaled or what invincibility drug we took, but we all got out of the car. We walked right over there and right over to that staircase. She had disappeared into the plane, but she comes back out into the entryway, and she has her roses, and she has the research, and she looks down at us, and she said, I got it. It was amazing. It was like mission impossible accomplished. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know who told her who we were. We never got introduced to her. But she goes back in, and then we look to our left. And we have got a blue tsunami coming our way. And in the middle of this tsunami is the head of the security we had met that morning. And she was silently talking but clearly, you could see what she was saying. How in the hell? And she, they're coming towards us. We are just moonwalking back to the car. <laughs> Got in the car, asked Kingsley to take this thing airborne. We start to pull away, but fully thinking that the siren is going to be coming on behind us. It did not, and it was amazing to us. Um, I think that they just simply felt that it was just too much of embarrassment and how in the world <laughs> did this little day-tripping group get into this, <laughs> our world. So we drive back down to the university, and the president and the trustees are waiting for us to hear this story. And we had Mari, she on the phone, 
and he was laughing like Yoda. He was delighted with every part of the story that unfolded, and it was just an amazing day. So me, Maharishi, Nancy Reagan, it was all so very good. So this 1960s hippie chick just has to ask you the question, if you ever have the chance to just get in a little mischief, a little danger, uh, you know, I just thought uh, I'd, I would just make an addendum to Mrs. Reagan's, uh, her little thing about just say no, and I'll tell you to just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> In our last story, Jeff Smith's third residence in the Traverse area features a room that he's sure has a story behind it. So uh, when my family moved back to northern Michigan from Minneapolis, where we'd lived for 13 years, we dreamed, like many people, of finding a uh, fixer-upper farmhouse in Leelanau County. But we, we soon learned that uh, even then, almost 20 years ago, they're, they're hard to come by. So we rented a house, and then we rented another house, and like three years went by, and my wife called me at work one day, and she's like, you gotta come and meet me. Uh, I think I found the farmhouse. It's Kitty Corner from Sugarfoots. And uh, so I went out there, and uh, and the vision I'd held of a fixer-upper, you know, in my mind was not really what I saw when I pulled into the driveway. Like, for example, I was picturing a house that you could actually live in. <laughs> but uh, what I saw when I pulled into the driveway was this isolated, abandoned farmhouse that just looked like a complete wreck. And uh, the exterior doors were gone, some of the windows were broken. The roof had just, it was a metal roof, had just all gone to rust. The water well didn't work. The septic was no good. And the, the siding, the siding was that like asphalt rolled stuff with the fake brick, you know, but like it was missing here and there. And, uh, and later, later on, you know, we ended up buying the place, but later on, um, <laughs> We had heard the, the seller figured whoever bought this house would just tear it down, you know, so they just sold it to us for the cost of the land. And then we also heard that some kids who lived nearby made a horror movie in the house. <laughs> so the crowning design touch was in the kitchen that I saw when we walked through. Uh, somebody, like apparently using the dullest instrument they could find, they cut a rectangle in the wall and they shoved the back of the refrigerator into it to make more room, you know, in the kitchen. So it was like a built-in, but really in a, in a league of its own because now most of the fridge, you know, virtually all the fridge was in the bathroom. <laughs> so then from the kitchen, we opened this pea green door and we saw this room. It was just a big, plain, expansive room, like 20 by 40 feet. And it just caught our curiosity, like, you know, what is this? And uh, it was built more like an outbuilding. There was no insulation. It was open studs, open rafters. 
the uh, floor was just uh, just unvarnished maple, and all the wood was that dark red hue that wood gets after it's aged, you know, for generations. And in this big room, there was only a single light bulb, like way at the end, to to light up the entire room. And um, we just thought, oh, oh yeah. And then there was this. Um, like a little platform about the size of a twin bed at one end that was covered with dirty linoleum. And we're like, oh, maybe they made, like this was a wood shop or something like that. I, I, we didn't know. So I walked back in the kitchen and looked out the window, and it was around solstice. And I looked out the window, it was twilight, evening twilight, and I saw this fawn and her mother and the fawn was, had its head twisted up and was nursing from the mother. And I don't put a whole lot of stock in omens, you know, but I thought, this is such a powerful sign of life and fertility that even skeptical me cannot deny it. And my wife agreed, and so we, we bought the house. And so, can you tell we don't always make decisions based on logic, right? <laughs> so, uh, but, but we, we love the house, suckling fawn or not, we love the house. Despite the decrepit exterior, the bones of the house were actually really solid as could be. Uh, but we didn't whisper any of this to our family because they would have uh, badgered us incessantly to sabotage the deal because they would have thought we were completely insane. Because, did I mention we have no construction skills at all? Yeah. <laughs> So by the time we closed on the house in September, we still didn't know the purpose of that big room. Uh, our real estate agent said rumor was that a Polish farmer had seven daughters and he nev never let them go out. So he built the big room so the boys could court the daughters under his watchful eye. <laughs> it sounds like the beginning of a farmer's daughter joke, right? And. Uh, so we began gutting the house, and it filled with doors and old windows and trim. And uh, our friend Rico Cruz came over. He's here, Rico, there, uh, with a crowbar and some goggles to rip lath off and plaster. And he said the house had been owned for a long time by Sugarloaf, and it was the dorm for the girls during the summer. And he and other boys would come over and dance with the girls in the big room, and there was even like a disco ball scattering light all around the room. And he said, we called it the disco hall, and he'd like make some moves, you know? And uh, so when we moved on to construction, one delivery guy or another would, would pull up with some material, and they'd kind of stare at the house, and you know, you could kind of see their mind working, and I came to expect what would come next. They'd say, hey, I used to party in this house. Is, <laughs> is that big room still the way it was? <laughs> and uh, one guy, one driver, pulled up with a load of two-by-fours, and he told tales of a legendary hot tub and he saw a ghost while sitting in the hot tub once. <laughs> a former ski, uh, ski hill worker described colossal parties that the lift ops would have on the last day of ski season every year. And I soon came to believe that every dude over 50 had 
lit up some kind of smoke or tip back some kind of a drink in our big room. <laughs> but I would ask every one of them, like, well, what was its original purpose? And none of them knew. And so the answer arrived on a brilliant Sunday in February. I was nailing trim to a window when I looked out and I saw these two women walking through the snow. One was about in her 40s, one in her 30s. And they're talking, you know, kind of excitedly and pointing up at the roof. And uh, they, knocked, uh, they knocked on the door. And, I, like, they didn't look like ex-ski lift operators. And I didn't see, like, a bag of weed in their pocket or anything. But <laughs> I thought they just looked like they might know something about the house. And so they told me they grew up here. And they said their Polish great-grandfather had built the house in 1894. Their grandfather, or he had raised like 10 kids or something. Their grandfather had raised 10 kids in the house. Their dad raised eight kids in the house. And they wanted to walk around. I'm like, sure, fine. So we went upstairs, we toured around, we came back down. And we got back to the kitchen, and they're sort of sharing memories the whole way. But finally, I can't help it. I'm like, just cut them off. I'm like, what about the big room? Tell me about this big room. And uh, the sister Mary says, oh, the dance hall. And they explained how the family would get together every Sunday evening and invite neighbors over, and they would have these polka dances and square dances. And uh, they said, you can ask our dad about it. He, lives, he still lives in Cedar. He's, he's 90. So when the snow melted, we invited their dad out, Joe Brzezinski, uh, so we could hear the stories firsthand. And he sat on the couch for a while, then we walked around the house, and he was kind of telling one tale after another. But when we finally arrived at the dance hall, uh, you could tell that the feelings he had, both, both happy and sad, were just amplified like tenfold. And we opened the door, and he just stood in the doorway, and his eyes missed it over, and he stayed quiet, and he just kind of breathed for a little bit, and looked around, and you knew that like the memories of the dances were so strong, they just conjured people back to life for him. And he said, you know, I was just five, but you couldn't keep me off that dance floor. And, and, his, and he's talking, he's like, tracing these arcs, you know, on the floor. And um, he says, somebody would yell, we need a dancer. And I'd run right out there. And, uh, and again, he was just kind of like pointing around. And, uh, and you knew that he was just truly pointing to people he had loved in that room. So we walked over to the linoleum platform. And Joe solved that mystery, too. It was the stage. And he said, Steve Pleva would sit right here and play the concertina. And Stan Mikowski would play here, stand here with his bass. And my crazy uncle Joe, the left-handed fiddle player, would sit right here. And as he talked about each one, he would like sort of sit and stand and kind of play their instruments, you know. And you could, you could just see these farm musicians just like rise, like right before your eyes. And so to get the lumber for the dance hall, the Brzezinski family, uh, bought a farm next door that went bust, and then they dismantled the house and brought it over, and they added this dance hall to the back of their house. And uh, Joe's Uncle Martin built it in 1920 in the summer, 
and he said Uncle Martin was a bachelor, and all he needed was uh, some food and a place to sleep. That was it. And he pointed, like, just in this corner of the floor, and he goes, he slept right there all summer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so the Brzezinski's held dances in this dance hall most Sundays all the way through the 20s, through the Great Depression, and to the dawn of World War II. Oh, sorry, I'm reading here. And uh, most people, I found this really interesting, most people just walk over from nearby farms because back then everybody had 10 kids. So they'd have Sunday dance with 40 or 50 people every week because like those were just the neighbor folks, you know. <laughs> and uh, they were all a bunch of Polish Catholics. The attire was simple. I asked Joe what they wore. He said women wore long Sunday dresses and the men wore, quote, whatever their mothers would make them. <laughs> uh, two polka songs and one square dance song. That was the musical formula. And when the violin bow hit string, three uh, s squares of eight would circle around the floor. It wasn't advertised or nothing, Joe said, and there was no charge, but you had to bring your own cider. This wasn't no million-dollar dance hall, I'll tell you that. And no, it isn't a million-dollar dance hall. Just some scab timbers and planks with a corrugated metal roof and an unvarnished maple floor. You might poke your head in there and say, so what? A few people have said, what are you going to do with this? You could get a couple bedrooms out of that and a bathroom, too. Um, but the world needs the spirit of that simple room to endure, that Polish desire to gather with people you love and dance. The dance hall came back to life the summer after we bought it, but it wasn't a polka. My 16-year-old son and his friends cleaned out the room, and his pal Adam Harkness set up some turntables and giant speakers, and a hip-hop beat thumped the walls. Summer twilight shone in. Boys and girls on the cusp of adulthood danced to that big hip-hop boom. Polka, square dance, boogie-woogie, rock and roll, disco, hip-hop, the dance hall abides. <laughs> Our first polka dance came next, and Joe was there. I'm not sure we were aware of it at the time, but looking back, we realized we were hoping Joe could be our emissary to the spirits of the dance hall, hoping he could let them know to trust us, that we would honor the humble space where so much feeling had happened, so much hand holding hand, so much elbow, crooked in elbow, so much arm around waist, so much cheek to cheek, so much coming together. Since then, we've had many more dances even a wedding. And at each one, each and every single one, the magic has returned. We have felt the spirits rise to dance with us, and we have thanked them.
So I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that Ben Whiting, perhaps the very embodiment of moonlighting, is joining us in studio to talk about the next show's theme, which happens to be moonlighting. Welcome to the studio, Ben. Thank you so much, Karen. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you, except it's really cold out, and I'm sad. Ah, well, we all got our winter gear on. We're we're Michiganders, so we we have warm clothing that we can apply. That's true. I have discovered though, I'm very bad at January. If that is a thing, travel find find a way find a way to travel. Get a job somewhere and just get a little sunshine, a little vitamin D. Yeah, well, you do travel. Or even a lot if you work work. at a, a tanning salon, that that's travel enough for me. That's right. <laughs> and you do travel a lot for work, so you probably get to mix business with sunshine (laughs) i do yeah i really there's a part of me that's always just loved kind of traveling and being on my own and meeting new people seeing new things and so yeah i try to take advantage of it when i can and i'll take a job sometimes even if the pay isn't great if i get to go to a cool place then it's totally worth it for me yeah so you're one of the many many people i know who has like eight thousand side gigs oh yes (laughs) um volunteer gigs and a full-time gig so sometimes you're a keynote speaker you perform magic at your own shows you do magic at benefit shows you do magic as private shows uh you perform it on cruises um you were a volunteer on a congressional campaign and you travel for your work as i said and i and act and occasionally write you act in theater <laughs> productions and you write so and i'm probably missing something but i guess that i'm probably missing me. something <laughs> right so yeah i guess right now the biggest question that everyone will want to know is do you sleep Ever? Do I sleep? I actually uh, sleep a pretty good bit. It's one of my wife's complaints about me is that I can fall asleep anywhere, which my dad always said is just evidence of a clean conscience. And that's that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so how do you fit in all the work? All the work. Oh, my goodness gracious. That is an excellent question. It's, for me, it never feels like I'm doing a lot of stuff. It feels like I'm focused on one thing at a time. I think if if I try to put my if I try to look at everything as a whole and soak it in, I would go absolutely crazy. But I'm I'm pretty good at just kind of compartmentalizing and focusing on one little thing at a time. Like before I came here, uh, I was writing like a little article for a leadership blog that I help with, and then after I leave here, I'll be working on contracts for a magic gig I have this weekend and a few weekends after that. And then tomorrow morning, uh, I'll probably just write for myself before going off to a leadership training thing that I have to lead. Do you, like, dream about calendar management? <laughs> calendar <laughs> management. Oh, that's a good one. For me, it's it's not so much about calendar management as much as it's about energy management. Hmm. Like, I, you have to kind of be aware of your own strengths and weaknesses and where uh, you do your best work. Uh, there's a great book by Dan Pink called When, W-H-E-N. It's all about the neuroscience behind productivity and like the different times of day and how our brain works. Certain people do better creative tasks first thing in the morning. We all have more self-discipline in the morning, more willpower. So it's always good if you're going to do that thing that's really difficult to do it first thing in the morning. What was it that uh, Mark Twain always said? Uh, if you have to eat a frog, eat it first thing. Hmm. If you have to eat two frogs, eat the biggest one first. <laughs> Like, yeah, so like just trying to be aware of yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses and uh, and playing to those is really, really uh, is, is something that's helped me kind of leverage my energy to do what I do. Interesting. Yeah, I always go to the gym first thing in the morning because it is the thing that I could easily not do if I don't do it. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> I don't even do that. Yeah. I I like I, I hire I like put my Fitbit on my dog's collar so I can get my steps in. <laughs> <laughs> And how's she doing? He. Oh, he's doing great. He's got four <laughs> legs, so I get all my steps in usually before 11. Awesome. Way to go. 
You and Scooter. <laughs> Me and Scooter, yes. So, um, so aside from childhood odd jobs, what's the first job you ever had? First job I ever had, I was 14 years old, and I was a Taekwondo instructor. Really? Yes. When I was really young, I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle more than anything else. <laughs> and so I asked my parents if I could take karate, and they signed me up for Taekwondo when I was about five years old. And it was just something that uh, I stuck with. I just really stuck with it. And it, there was a brief period where my mom made me go, and I didn't want to, but I did. And eventually, it was something I got pretty good at, and I started teaching. And I was 14 years old. I don't know if it was under the table or what but one day like the head guy just gave me a fistful of cash and I was like good work this week and I was like what and he's like yeah yeah keep working and I was like okay and so yeah and then eventually I started getting checks and uh yeah but that was my first job I was a, a assistant taekwondo instructor and then an outright taekwondo instructor were you teaching adults yeah I was teaching everyone from you know the ages of five to 65 interesting yeah because actually my first job that was not like camp counselor or babysitter um i was an aerobics instructor at a gym for women um which i always felt weird like teaching adults i i don't know i just like i mean i also think it's weird that i was an aerobics instructor anyway because right. like that whole like culture of like four more three more Two, Two more. more. You got it, girls. <laughs> yeah. Now take it left and right. Take it left and right. Yeah, like did, that's just not me. <laughs> did you have did you have any siblings growing up? Um, I am the youngest of three. Youngest of three. So for me, I was an only child. So I the majority of my friends, the people I related the most to, were adults anyway. Uh -huh. So maybe that helped me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I used to be a gymnast, so I think that helped me with the aerobics piece. Oh, of course. But yeah. it just it like it was just so weird to me. Like, I mean, again, I'm not perky and you did, need to did, be perky. Yeah, and did, they did everything I told them to do. It was crazy. Like, I actually had, I was so tempted to, like, just throw in there, like, you know, now take it left and right. Now put a bag over your head and scream like a chicken, yeah. which is <laughs> a nod to a classic Dick Van Dyke show. Right. Did you, uh, <laughs> now, did you apply for that job or was it offered to you or how did, I, how did you come in? Yeah, that job? I applied. It was walking distance from my house. Oh, and right. uh, so I just went in there one day and said, I want to be an aerobics instructor. Did it pay well? I. Uh, it was 1989, probably not. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah. I do remember, though, this is actually insane. So somebody quit. And this is actually, like, aside from being weirded out by teaching aerobics to adults, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the, my biggest memory is somebody quit and took all the tapes with them. And um, and so the management of our um, of our specific satellite office, whatever, was um, going to charge all of us who were still employees um, for the tapes. So, like, they were going to dock our pay to get new tapes. Hmm. And I told my mom about this, and she called corporate, and corporate called them and said, you can't do that. And I got called into the office, and they were like, you know, your mommy's not always going to help you. And I was like... She did today. She did today. <laughs> and also, I'm not, always, money. I'm not always going to be 17. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, am I supposed to have business savvy as a teenager? <laughs> that was weird. Um, all right. So what's the weirdest job you ever had? Oh, God. <laughs> is it I, don't know, is, I don't know if there was specific... I mean, I was a street performer for a long time. That was a, a good majority of my income. But I mean, being a magician, even though I do it still, is pretty out there and i wouldn't say there's so much strange jobs as much as strange gigs like you know you get to a party and you think it's gonna be like you know 50 or 60 people and it's like three in a living room and like oh, they're God. just like staring at you and like all right read our minds and I'm like oh, okay 
Or um, what I used to do back in Chicago is I had this agent, and I, I can't remember the name of the agency, but this woman was so bad when it came to costumes. And so uh, our agreement was that she got a percentage of whatever I charged, but I knew I had to use her costumes when I had a gig. And so if a client wanted me, I would I added it to my little contract that I had a dignity fee for wearing costumes because it literally was a dignity fee because I had to give up a part of myself every time I wore one of her costumes. We had a pirate theme party one time, and no joke, the costume was... Uh, they wanted me to look like Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. So they gave me like, she gave me this like Bob Marley wig for the dreadlocks, which is like four times the amount of dreadlocks that Johnny Depp has. <laughs> the hat was probably free with a Long John Silver's meal. Uh, I had an eye patch, which I don't think Johnny Depp had. And of course, that beautiful like pirate leather jacket he had was replaced by a geisha's kimono. Uh, and I want to say it was teal blue. So imagine all that. And plus, of course, I put eyeliner on, too. Well, you gotta. <laughs> I don't know why people kept using her for, yeah. <laughs> for costume things, because it was just rough. <laughs> so did you walk into the room and people said, hey, Jack Sparrow? Or did they say, I, what are you supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, more the latter. And, so, and some more, wasn't really, they really didn't talk to me. They just kind of kept their distance, I think. <laughs> like, did we, we paid for him to be here? <laughs> So is this like just things she had around her house? Or? I, is she had a clothing rack in the base. It was it was a husband-wife team. They had this clothing rack in the basement. They just had, I mean, it wasn't full. It was pretty sparse, but they could, you know, allegedly pull anything out of it. I remember we had a, because uh, I, I lived in Chicago in the, uh, oh, what's the Museum of Science and Industry? Mm-hmm. We're having a Star Wars thing. And, like, there were so many Star Wars nerds that had, like, costumes from the movies like had actually been in the movies like stormtroopers and of course this woman is like oh we have darth vader we have a darth vader outfit and it was one of those vinyl unitards that just had like the screen printing of darth vader on it no cape and like one of those half children's masks that just covers the front of your face with like a little breathe hole here and two eyes and like all these stormtrooper nerds are so pissed that Darth Vader is like wearing a $15 like bargain basement like <laughs> costume it was they were actually I was mad because they had lightsabers and guns I was like oh geez I was Chewbacca which I think was just a old Teddy Ruxpin outfit or something <laughs> so it's like everyone's like half brother <laughs> right exactly <laughs> it's like Chewbacca's seventh cousin half removed <laughs> Yeah, for me, the uh, weirdest job I ever had, it, it, I mean, I guess it wasn't necessarily a weird job, but it went very weirdly. I only lasted a day. Well, that sounds like <clears throat> relationship management. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, there was a, it was like a frozen yogurt uh, place, because, you know, in the mm-hmm. 90s. Um, oh, Froyo's. Yeah, that was Love huge Froyos. back then. <laughs> so I was selling frozen yogurt at oak street beach in chicago like mm-hmm. out of a, like this salmon push cart um with an umbrella and a cowbell so people could hear me coming and um did you have to hit the cowbell or did it ring on its own as it as well it... i was i was stationary so. uh, oh you're stationary okay yeah so uh like so they could hear me like as i came to my my resting spot or whatever <laughs> but it was just oh it was humiliating i actually i almost got arrested by the park police uh (laughs) because they came up to me and said hey do you work for 
this person? And I said, yes. And they said, well, you better call him on your walkie-talkie like right now because he doesn't have a permit to sell yogurt here and he knows that. And we will arrest you if you're not out of here in like five minutes. So we did cell phones then, yes. (laughs) You didn't know it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he came and got me and then put me in Oz Park. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Oz Park. I remember Oz Park. Yeah, it's it's for those out there who don't know, it's a very beautiful park in Chicago that has statues um, from characters (laughs) from the Wizard of Oz. So yeah, he, uh, he moved me to Oz Park, which, I mean, Oak Street Beach in the summer has like tons of people. Oz Park was basically fifth graders who were <laughs> making fun of my visor. I had to wear a visor, and they were, I remember uh, them making fun of it. Should have <laughs> charged a dignity fee. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> or like dignity, they have like a styrofoam cup, dignity tips. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, when he came to pick me up, I was like, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> so, so do you have a dream job um, that doesn't actually exist as far as you know? I think like a lot of the jobs I have, I I just kind of made up. The uh, I was really like I, I mean more or less my trajectory was uh, of main jobs is I was an actor in Chicago, but to make money I was a street performer, and from there I that was doing magic. From there I started doing house parties. House parties led to holiday parties, which led to country clubs, to corporate events, to sales conferences, to trade shows, which through a long string of random coincidences led to me doing keynote speeches. And from doing keynotes, I did a TED Talk and then ended up doing leadership consulting, which is what I do now. Mm-hmm. So I would love it if I could eventually tie acting and kind of theater back into what I'm doing now, which is something I'm working on. Hmm. But I haven't quite figured out all the details. But like as a dream job goes, I actually I like the idea of constantly trying to get to the next level, whatever it is. I don't know what that is always. Uh, but I get bored very quickly with things. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to always be learning, always stay curious, looking for opportunities to like, you know, combine two things that people didn't think could be combined and get paid to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I think I feel like my dream job is I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Uh, but I know whatever it is, I probably won't have it for long before I have another dream job right. and start working towards that one. <laughs> So is there any dream job out there that like would never actually exist <laughs> that you would be into? That would um, never actually exist? Give me an example. Well, I'll tell you mine. So exactly. Yeah, this, yeah. this came up um, in like a kind of a joking conversation. Uh, I was talking about, um, you know, I'm an editor. Um, mm-hmm. In addition to the storytelling, I write and I edit. And I used the word editrix. Mm-hmm thinking that perhaps that could be (laughs) just another version of the term. And then someone, whoever, the person who I was talking to, advanced to the idea of, like, editrix in the vein of dominatrix, where, like, I could actually beat the shit out of people who, like, use subject-verb disagreement (laughs) 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 and, like, teach people how to use grammar with flogging. That's... That sounds amazing. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine a whole video series that they show on Betamax and elementary schools. Yeah. <laughs> like, probably not though. But, but I, I would watch it. Yeah. <laughs> but would you pay for it? <laughs> that's the question. That's that's the that's usually the rub. All right. Man, a job that doesn't. I don't know. A, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I, that, that sounds like an amazing job, but how do you advertise? That? How do you advertise it? How do you, yeah, what, how do you scale it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go to the small business development corporation and say, def- what should I charge? Yeah, I mean, the, the liability insurance alone is going to be <laughs> something to think about. Right. <laughs> But it is the dream. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if, it, if it teaches people to use good grammar, I'm, I'm all for it. 
<laughs> so nothing? You feel like you're you're really content in the real I'm world? Really content in the. I mean, I'm a magician, which is like that's true. That's my real world. So like, I pull stuff out from behind people's ears and read minds. That's right. That's cool. Yeah. Do you find like do people like frequently approach you? Like trying to like to ask you like how did you do that or do they study you? Intently? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that is that is people ask you know how do you do it? And I, one of my kind of like default answers is you know years of practice and self denial. Mm-hmm. But then you get the people who think like that you genuinely have some kind of psychic gift, which I don't. By the way, <laughs> put that out there. The uh, but they you know they th- and when I tell them I don't, they think I'm lying and I'm trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. And so what I've the, the response I've come up with now that usually works pretty well is like no matter what's happening on stage, your experience is always real. And that usually like stupefies them enough that they, they'll walk away <laughs> feeling content. So that's what I say. Interesting. <laughs> I feel like that could translate to the storytelling stage too oh, yeah, as yeah. a concept. No no matter what ha- what's happening, your experience is always real. I'm sure there's some kind of Eckhart Tolle lesson in there about the now and being present. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I will admit that there are a few, um, I have seen your shows many times, Yes, and uh, there are a <laughs> few things you. that you've done on stage where I'm like, I just want to know how he does that. And they're like, no, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I want to believe. <laughs> there you go. Take it. So as I mentioned earlier, and our listening audience couldn't probably figure it out based on what we've been talking about today, um, the theme for the next show is Moonlighting. How do you figure, like, what's the value of storytelling in moonlighting? I don't think there is a more effective way to communicate and connect with people than simply telling a good story. Uh, and I've, I've learned more about this with the leadership development and helping other people, like, develop communication strategies. Stories, they just tap into a part of our brain that, you know, facts and figures and numbers simply doesn't mm-hmm. it taps into that part of our brain that you know creates emotion and ironically enough the part of our brain that makes decisions uh, the part of our brain that uh, understands logic and language and math isn't the part of our brain that we make decisions with that's why we've all made decisions I think that are uh, well I don't know about you but I know I have made quite a few decisions that some might consider illogical <laughs> yeah but when you tell a great story and you use it to connect with people and you try to ask those questions and get their stories, that's when the best, in my opinion, the best ideas uh, come. And that's when you can really start taking things to the next level. But without those stories, we're just, you know, facts, figures, and numbers walking around. And it's, it's not very interesting at all to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's been a lot of brain science about the oxytocin and the dopamine that gets released <laughs> um, just when we listen to a story. Uh, yeah, yeah. Neurological mirroring. Yeah. No, it's pretty fascinating. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just... The stories that have been told on the hearsay stage, I, I, it's like I'm carrying a database in my brain, <laughs> um, just because there've been so many good stories mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's it's really easy to latch onto them where it's not. I don't know anything about these people except that one story that they told, and to yeah, me, I feel yeah. like I've known them for years and years. Right, and the big thing is, you know, we don't even sometimes always remember the details of the stories, but we never forget how people make us feel, and so it's always important to kind of keep that in mind. Whenever you're trying to get a new job or trying to come up with a new idea, because ultimately at the end, it's all about connecting with people. And like I said, I think stories are the most powerful tool we have to do that with. 
Absolutely. Well, thanks again for being here. Karen, thank you. This was an absolute blast. Yeah, and uh, we look forward to having you on the stage again I, sometime. I know you know that I have a story about <laughs> Scooter in mind. So. Yeah, you do. That, that might be Aaron's to tell as opposed to mine. <laughs> okay, someday. All right, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And another thanks to our in-studio guest, Ben Whiting. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.